Hi, I'm Dr. Fred Silva of Arcana Laboratories, coming to you from Little Rock, Arkansas, with another installment of Throwback Thursday. Going deep. Often there is more than just making the diagnosis, although obviously that is supreme. But when you hear somebody present or answer questions, it's sometimes intuitive to know how deep, widely read, experienced they are. I don't claim to be an expert at going deep, but that is my goal. When I say going deep, I mean knowing the following things. The normal anatomy and physiology. And of course, if you're involved with renal development or cystic disease, then knowledge of embryology is important. Mechanisms of disease, etiology, pathogenesis, differential diagnosis, what Randy Kenniger calls root causes, is very important. And therefore, it's important to know at least some of the experimental models that are classic. The evolution, the history of the disease progression is important, including the etymology, the origin of the diagnostic word, as well as the history of that word and the history of light, electron, and immunofluorescence. Obviously, it's important to keep up with new diseases and new techniques, including, of course, molecular, AI, and statistics. Prognosis and therapies and how to follow up is very, very important uh, and is involved in a collaborative education with the clinician. So where do we go from here with the individual patient is a dual effort between the clinician and the pathologist. Asking questions is always important. In fact, there's a story about Isidore Rabbi, who would eventually become a Nobel laureate in particle physics at Columbia University, and several stories about him, but one was when he was a child, he would come home and his dad did not ask him, son, did you learn anything today? But son, did you ask any good questions today? And I've interacted with a couple of Nobel laureates and what really set them apart besides their genius was their ability to ask great questions. And finally, critical thinking which could be an entire course and maybe should be. But in terms of approach and logic and knowing logical fallacies and the philosophy, history of science is all very important in terms of going deep. In terms of critical thinking, it's important to question your assumptions, to give precise definition of your terms, to make sure everyone's talking about the same thing, and to use, as Prani has suggested, a systematic, science-based approach, and no problems of deduction, induction, abduction, and so on, knowing logical approaches. It's important, as I said before, to know the common fallacies and problems, as well as knowing your own biases and emotions. Knowing some of the historical aspects of your topic is very important. When solving a problem, critical thinking is important to discuss with others. An Infotopia, How Many Minds Produce Knowledge, by Cass Sunstein, would suggest that groups do better than individuals, interactive groups do better than aggregative groups, and experts do better than the general public. Continuing in that vein, 
Having groups being the most productive, groups should regard dissent as an obligation, critical thinking should be prized, and devil's advocates should be encouraged. In other words, there should be collective rationality and mutual criticism, and be sure you have evidence-based rather than eminence-based decisions. Even controlled clinical trials, according to the Cochrane Collaboration, suggests that there can be biases when assessing the quality of controlled clinical trials. There may be selection bias, that is, biased allocation to comparison groups. Performance bias, that is, unequal provision of care apart from treatment under evaluation. Detection bias, that's bias assessment of outcome. Attrition bias, that's biased occurrence and handling of deviations from the protocol and loss of patients to follow up. It's my experience that you lose approximately half of the patients that are initially enrolled for a variety of reasons. And, of course, even in the oncologic field, it's known that only four or at most five percent of patients available to be entered into a protocol accept that protocol for a variety of reasons. And finally, external validity, the extent to which the result trials provide a correct basis for generalization to other circumstances is important. Some of the initial experimental classic models of renal disease involve the following. One, nephrotoxic serum nephritis, otherwise known as Masugi nephritis, Shibata nephritis, anti-GBM glomerular disease. Heyman's, and that's how you pronounce it according to his son, Heyman's nephritis, which is FX1A, brush border antibody, now known as GP330, megalin, as seen in membranous glomerular nephropathy. Number three, a 5-6 nephrectomy model of FSGN by the pathologists Morrison and Shimimura and brought to light again by Barry Brenner. Number four, the injection of immune complexes, which usually end up glomerular mesangial and or subendothelial. Or, if you make the immune complexes cationic, then they may become subepithelial, although the present thought is that most subepithelial deposits are in situ complex formation. Number five, thigh 1.1 associated with mesangiolysis, glomerular cysts, and TMA. Number six, aminonucleoside, a prototype of minimal change disease, but if there's multiple administrations of pyromycin aminonucleoside, then FSGS is produced. With regard to number seven, acute tubular necrosis, various toxins, urinal acetate, genomycin, glycerol have been used as well as the other form of ATN, ischemia, and reperfusion. Number eight, Goldblatt kidney, leading to hypertension, and according to Byron and Wilson, contralateral nephrosclerosis. Number nine, of course, we can't leave out the numerous models of SLE in mice, initially from the NZB, NZW mice to the LPR mice with its total variety of autoantibodies. And of course, there are others. 
The history of various parts of renal pathology and renal disease is very important. I believe that in the previous Arcana podcasts, we've gone over the light microscope, electron microscopy, immunofluorescence, other places you can find the history of immunohistochemistry and molecular biology. And also with the Arcana podcast, we've gone over the various diagnostic terms and diseases and names, as well as the introduction of the renal biopsy itself, as well as nephrology itself. Thus, I think it's important to know all of these things in order to approach renal disease in a variety of ways, which lead to increasing understanding. We're now at the end of these Arcana podcasts. I would like to thank everybody involved, including Arcana Labs and Catherine and Chastity, and especially my wife for allowing me to do this, as well as Nick, Dr. Pat Walker, who's an extraordinary individual and pathologist, as well as Dr. Chris Larson, who is also an extraordinary individual and a number of other people. What I've tried to do is to go over the history, since I'm one of the older people around nowadays, of renal pathology. I think if you don't know the history, you're missing out on a little bit of interesting stuff, including some really interesting backstories. I've tried to do things that are not in books or publications, but if you want to go to a history of renal pathology, I would suggest you read either Vivette Degati's uh, paper or Dr. Charlie Jeanette's paper in two different journals. They are good reviews. Anyway, it's been an honor to be with you, and I thank you, and good luck in the future. Thank you for listening. This podcast and more can be found in the iTunes and Google Play stores. For more information and educational programming like this, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or visit us on the web at arcanalabs.com.